Y'all doing all right? Well, Merry Christmas. Hey, look, last couple of weeks, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Carol's on the block. Man, we had a great time going to the various neighborhoods. How many of y'all was there a couple of weeks ago? Didn't we have a good time out there? It was wonderful. And the beautiful thing about that is that we had so many interesting conversations about Christmas and about Christ. It was different families that had different traditions that celebrate Christmas differently. And that's okay because what should remain the same is if we're celebrating the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. That's the reason for Christmas, right? It's to celebrate this Jesus. And today the world is blind to who Jesus really is. It's not something new. I'm sure you all have conversations around the dinner table with family and friends about who is Jesus. You've had conversations at the workplace with coworkers, and you have conversations in the neighborhood about who this Jesus is and his various opinions and thoughts about who he is. Even the disciples themselves, those that walked with Jesus, that talked with Jesus, they didn't even know who he really was until he died and rose from the dead. The people during that day didn't know who Jesus was. They thought he was a miracle worker, thought he was a healer. They didn't know if he was the promised Messiah or not. The question this Christmas is who was and who is this Jesus? This is the question. This is the most important question ever. How do you answer it? Well, today our text is from Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to 31. And Jesus here asked his disciples this question. And I want you to check how this drama unfolds. You all should have a Bible if you do. Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to 31. Second book, New Testament after Matthew. And here's the reading of God's word. Starting in verse 27, it says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise from the dead. This is God's word. So I got two points and two points only. Verse 27 to 28 is the question that we all must answer. And then in verse 29 to 31 is a response that we must know and believe. I won't be before you too long, but the overarching question that we want to answer today is who is Jesus? And verse 27 is the question. And this question is set in a context, is a setting around the question in which Jesus is asking his disciples. And it says, Jesus went with his disciples. These were Jesus' people, his homeboys, his roadies. They were walking and they were talking. He was discipling them. And at the core of discipleship, that's what it is, learning to walk and talk with Jesus together. Those who listen to his voice, those who learn his ways, and those that follow him. And if you think about it, we all are listening to somebody or something. We all are following something or someone. 
But what Jesus calls us to do is turn from what we're currently following in the world to come and follow him. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your experience. It doesn't matter how much dirt you have done in the past. He simply says, follow him. Someone needs to hear that today because you have the idea in the back of your mind that somehow you have to clean yourself up, wear a suit or a tie or have a certain status. But these men that walked and talked with Jesus were not wealthy. They were not well-to-do. These were common folk, fishermen, blue-collar people. Some were fearful. One was a traitor. One doubted. One was a hustler who robbed his own people. When Jesus got a hold of them, they became men of God. We have a lot of testimonies in this room today of those who have done some things in the past, but they are now men of God. There's some women who have done some things in the past, but today they are women of God. See, we get it backwards sometimes. It's not about us and doing something to make ourselves clean. It's Jesus who makes us clean. So here they're walking and they're talking with Jesus. But where was Jesus taking them? And then we all have that question from time to time. Jesus, I'll follow you. I'll follow wherever you go. But, But where are you leading me? Where are you taking me? What may seem random to you is very intentional with Jesus, family. And on this particular day, Jesus took his disciples to the village of Caesarea in Philippi. Caesarea was a famous hood known around the world for straight up idolatry and debauchery. This is where they erected statues of false gods like Pan, this half-goat demonic creature that promised money, power, and respect to all who bowed down to him. The people believed that this place in Caesarea Philippi was literally the gates of hell. And yet, this is the place where Jesus wanted to walk and talk with his disciples. But I'll tell you that, this was the backdrop where he asked them this very important question. Who do people say that I am? And just like today, and especially during this time of year, Jesus is the talk of the town. There's so much confusion. Catch was like, I think he's Elijah, the prophet. He does miracles. He raises the dead. He multiplies food. There was five loaves and two fish one day. The next, there was fish sandwiches for everybody. Yeah, he's Elijah. And then others said he's John the Baptist or some other prophet. They all had this one thing in common. They were wrong. And you can be sincere. And you can be passionate about Jesus. But you can also be sincerely and passionately wrong about him too. And today in Southeast DC, Jesus asks this same question, a question to a city that sits in the midst of a false God and false idols with false promises of money, power, and respect to all who worship at the altar, whether from the White House or to the Trap House. The question is, who do men say that I am? Today, just like then, they call him a prophet. He's a good man or a great teacher. In the same way today, the world gets it wrong. Which makes it still an important question today, but the most important question is not even that. The most important question is, who do you say that he is? And in the text, you can feel the tension build. Will they respond like a popular views of the world, or will they have even considered this question at all? How will they respond? And then verse 29 to 31 is the response we must all know and believe. 
Verse 21 starts and it says, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. He began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. So we see here and we learn three things about Jesus. One, that Jesus is the Christ, verse 29. Two, that he suffered and died in verse 31, and that he rose from the dead in verse 31. First, Jesus is the Christ. See, there's a right way and a wrong way to view Christ, and there's no middle ground. The wrong view is based on thoughts and opinions of the world, but the right view is grounded and rooted in the truth of God's word. Those two things are literally miles apart. Today, you have a black Jesus, you have a white Jesus, you have this super woke Jesus, you can find a Jesus that is made in your very image and likeness just about anywhere. And you can get people to agree with you as well. Think about TikTok theology. And some of that is good, but some of it is bad. It becomes a problem when it's not the Jesus of the Bible. Now, this was the first time that Jesus asked his disciples this question directly. And ever since he had rebuked the wind and said, peace be still to the sea, they ask, who is that man who does the sea and the wind even obey his voice? And they had in the back of their minds this question all along, who is this man? Who is this man, Jesus? But here you see Peter gives the answer. He says, you are the Christ, the Christ, the anointed one of God, the chosen savior who came to rescue sinners. Peter got it right. He got it right when so many people got it wrong. He got it right in the midst of high expectations that the Christ would come as a militant leader to overthrow Rome and establish the kingdom. But Jesus looked nothing like that. He got it right. Or did he? See, there's the plot twist because in the parallel gospel in Matthew 16, 16 to 17, Jesus states that flesh and blood had not revealed that to Peter, but the Father in heaven. And at this point in the narrative, they're still not fully awakened to the reality of who Jesus is. He had healed many people, including physically people that were blind and sick and lame, but they could not see that he came to heal spiritual blindness. So why does Jesus ask these questions about who he is? Why does he ask these questions in the backdrop of Caesarea? Because he wanted them to see that the world's ideas and their ideas were not really that far apart. They wanted a Christ that was made in their image and likeness and that catered to their desires and their wants. And the only way Peter or any of us, for that matter, can answer who is Jesus is if God himself reveals his son to us. And this is the question that we have to ask ourselves. How close or how far away are our thoughts from the real Jesus? How should we think about Christ? How should we think about Christmas? Do we follow the crowd? Do we follow our own selves? Or really, is he the reason for the season? Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the chosen savior who came to rescue sinners. And number two, Jesus had to suffer and die. Verse 31 says, and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Just imagine them walking and talking with Jesus and he says out of the blue, I'm going to suffer and die. He's like, what? But notice before he says that, he says the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed. The son of man is a title that comes from the book of Daniel, verse 7, 13 and 14. And to the Jewish mind, they would have picked up on this kind of language. It says in Daniel 7, 13 to 14, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages to serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, this imagery combines in this one person, this son of man, both human and divine traits. Jesus began to teach them that he is that son of man. The son of man who is truly God and truly man. And this is why, because in God's genius, this is exactly the type of Messiah, exactly the type of redeemer, exactly the type of savior that we all need. He had to be truly human to bear the penalty of humanity's sin. Think about that. He had to be. We all sin and deserve the wages of that sin, which is death. And God is so good that he doesn't wink at sin. And he has promised to destroy evil and the evildoer. The problem is, that's you. That's me. That's all of us. Because we all have sinned and fallen short of God's holy standard. We were born in sin, shaped in iniquity. We have rebelled against God. And God is so good. But God is also so loving that he came as a human, a baby born in a manger. That's the Christmas story. As a human, he is our representative. He is our substitute. Oh, what love, family. He perfectly obeyed the whole law on one hand and then suffered the punishment of our sin on the other. That's good news, but it gets better. He also had to be truly God. Why? Because only God himself could bear the penalty of the righteous wrath, which was poured out against him. And then he rose from the dead. And that's why Jesus uses the title, the son of man, the son of man must suffer. This was the divine plan and the divine will of God. He says he will suffer many things. Jesus suffered many things, physical things, mental things, emotional, spiritual, beatings, mockings, shame, betrayal. He was rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. These are those who were the righteous teachers and preachers of the day who should have known better. They were the ones who should have been confirming that he was the Christ, not condemning that he's the Christ. They should have been the ones leading people to Jesus, but instead were the ones who were putting up roadblocks. In verse 31, it says he must be killed, but not in any kind of death, but a death on the cross. The Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 21 states that cursed is anyone who dies upon a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
He redeemed us from the curses by becoming a curse for us. The son of God, the son of man became a curse for you. This is love. And he demonstrated this love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And after three days, he rose from the dead. And this demonstrated God's acceptance of Christ as our sacrificial lamb. And here's the beautiful thing. He calls us even today to respond, to turn from sin and to turn to God in Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. And this is the gift that we can never earn, but it's a gift that is freely given. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is a beautiful passage that says, For it's by grace that we have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Man, wouldn't it be a beautiful gift on Christmas to repent and believe today in this Jesus? When you think about the value of a Christmas gift, the, rally, the, the value of that gift really depends on two things, right? Think about that. Depends on who gave the gift and how much the gift costs. So think about the value of this gift of salvation in this way. That God the Father so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The gift is free, but Jesus paid a price that could never be measured. As the son of man, he paid the cost. Jesus paid it all. When he suffered and died. And lastly, number three, Jesus rose from the dead. And I'll conclude with a few thoughts on the resurrection. See, first, the resurrection is the power of God on display. The power of God on display. The resurrection is a historical fact that God put on display for the whole world to see. The same God who created life is the same God who is able to resurrect life after death. And that means that for every loved one, every beloved aunt, every beloved uncle, every mother, every friend who has died in Christ, their death is temporary. He has removed the sting of death, and each and every believer has the victory over the grave. We sang that earlier. We have victory because Jesus had victory. And the day is coming when death and tears and sorrow will be no more. And Jesus himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Family, what is a bee without a stinger? It's merely a pesky inconvenience. That's death for us. We have the hope after death, a living hope through the re resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection is the power of God on display over sin, death, and the grave. And second, the same resurrection power dwells in us, dwells in you. Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So not only is the indwelling spirit the guarantee of our future resurrection, but the spirit leads us, spirit convicts us, spirit teaches us, equips us, he sanctifies us, enables us to do the work of the ministry so that the world might see us as shining examples in our neighborhoods, shining examples among our family and our friends. And as I spoke earlier, I love the idea of what we did on uh, carols in the neighborhood. 
the houses that we stopped at, the beautiful neighbors that we met, the happy birthdays that we sang. Uh, you all had to be there to, to understand that. But it was just great to be out there among them. And it all bore witness to Heidi and Drew, Durst and Jacqueline, Michael and Dawn, walking in the spirit of faith, hope, and love among their neighbors. The question I have for us today is, are you relying on that power? Or are you relying on your own power to live this Christian life? The latter leads to victory over sin. It leads to true abundant life that Christ has promised us. And we believe that the spirit lives in you. Immerse yourself in God's word. Be encouraged by brothers and sisters' examples. Pray and obey what the spirit is saying. The same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And lastly, the resurrection confirms the power of the scriptures. The resurrection of Christ was predicted in advance in the Old Testament, in some cases 700 to 1,000 years before Christ was born in a manger. The 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So the word scriptures here indicate the Old Testament. Passages like Isaiah 53, 10 and 11 describe the death and resurrection as all being a part of God's will. In Psalm 22, the psalmist prophesies about the Messiah who dies and who is raised. And in Psalm 16, 10, yet another good example of the foretelling of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Of course, David here wrote this song, and of course he was delivered from death over and over from Saul and also from his son. But the ultimate fulfillment of this scripture, according to Acts 2.17, is not Jesus' deliverance from death, but his resurrection from death. Jesus is God's Holy One who never saw corruption even after he died. And the resurrection confirms the power of these scriptures. Every other religion was founded by prophets whose end was the grave. But as Christians, we know that God became man. He died for our sins and he was resurrected on the third day. The grave could not hold him. And now he lives and he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, interceding on our behalf. So as we close, you know, as we think about the disciples, they walked in. Caesarea of Philippi, they thought just like the society in which they had lived. Sure, they added some religious language, but at the core, they wanted a Jesus that satisfied their earthly desires. But Jesus took his time. He took his time to walk and talk with them, to disciple them, to correct their thinking. This was the right time and the right place for them to learn this lesson, because how you view Christ determines how you follow Christ or if you follow him at all, when things don't necessarily go according to your plan and your desires. So two questions by way of application. If Jesus were to ask you today, who is he? What would you answer? No, would you answer aligned with scripture or would your answers align with your own imagination? You see, Peter finally got it. He understood what suffering and the resurrection actually meant. And it had been etched in his mind permanently. And that is my prayer for us that 
not just the birth of Jesus, but the meaning of his suffering and the meaning of his resurrection will be etched in our minds permanently during this Christmas season. Listen to Peter's words in 1 Peter 4, 13 to 16. It says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory in God in that name. Peter got it. He knew the real Jesus. And I'll end with this story. When I was a teenager, um, I had received a gag gift for Christmas. Uh, I think it was 1994. I remember that because I was supposed to receive a Street Fighter II video game. I don't know if y'all know about Street Fighter with Ken and Ryu. My brother had promised me. But when we had all gathered around in his apartment in Brooklyn, I slowly began to open up my gift with great anticipation. And when I finally opened it, pulled in the box, beautiful rabbit, and it was a rock. <laughs> yeah, they thought it was funny like that too. I didn't. So the package looked good on the outside, but the present was a disappointment. The beautiful thing about Jesus is there is no gag gift with him. What he has promised, Jesus will deliver. He has promised salvation. He has promised sanctification, glorification, and a resurrected body. And we know it will come to pass because he has suffered, died, and rose to secure. He is the gift that we will never be disappointed in. Let us pray. Father, we do give you praise and thanks. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. And may his birth, his death, and his resurrection be etched in our minds today and throughout this Advent season. I pray that someone today, through the hearing of your word, come to repentance and faith. Be brought out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.